This call is now being recorded. All right. Well, welcome to our special episode of Multilinguish from Home. Um, I'm Dylan, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Jen, David, and Thomas. And we wanted to <laughs> check in and say hi um, and have a little roundtable discussion. So we're just going to talk about what we've learned language related this week while we've been at home doing our research. Um, and we wanted to share some fun things with you. Um, and we're also going to give give a soothing word um, that we particularly like in either English or another language because we all could use some soothing right now, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah. So we're excited to get started. So Thomas, why don't you kick us off? What did all you right. So as I think I've yelled about before you, I was doing some research on the census. Ooh. Have you, you all filled out this? I love the census. It's great. Have you all filled out the census yet? Yes. Obviously. So this was my first one because it's every 10 years. So last time I was 14. Too wow. young because I was wow. just a member of a household. But it was very exciting. And when I got the little thing in the mail and was filling out the questions, my thought because I like language, it's like, oh, there's going to be a language question. And I was very surprised that there is not on the census anything about language. Right. Like, I was, I thought it was way shorter than it actually, I don't know, should have been, but like, I, I was kind of surprised at how little they asked in general. Yeah, it was like yeah, four questions. I think it's seven, technically, because it's like how many people, and then there's a few race questions, which is always weird. Um, there's an article in The New Yorker by Jill Lepore that looks at the history of race questions on the census, which is really interesting, but I'm trying to keep this short and not go through the whole history of censuses. But <laughs> I noticed there was no language question, and I was like, then how do we know how many people in the country speak languages? Because we at Babbel, we've written a lot about where people speak languages. Those numbers must be coming from somewhere. So I decided to look into it, and I found out there was a language question on the census until the year 2000, and basically there have been fewer questions over time. Like in the 1800s, there were 70. Oh my God. And now there are like, people got really excited about data collection for a while, <laughs> and they were like, we can get this. But then they realized if they actually want to get an accurate count, the fewer questions, the better. So language got taken off, and then there's something else called the American Community Survey. So have you ever gotten the American Community Survey? I don't think so. No, no, but I've heard about it in linguistics classes as like a, a, one of the main sources of data about like social relationships, and I think language is, is mentioned in that, right? Yeah, so there's a ton of questions on the survey. It like has... It's where we get career information from, how much money people make, their like marital status. There's a bunch of data in there, and language is one of it. And so instead of being every 10 years in it to everyone, the American Community Survey is technically, they send out new ones every month, every year. It's constantly rolling, and then they use this, and they kind of do math to it. It kind of reminds me of like how they do television like rankings, because like they don't count every single viewer, they just have a select number and then try to use that as representative. So it's slightly less accurate, but they're constantly collecting data about it. It sort of so. reminds me, I got a survey from Pew recently, P-E-W. Um, mm -hmm. It was much more, I don't think there were any language questions, it was much more um, 
like political and civics oriented, like how do you feel about X, Y, Z kind of like topical issues? But I thought it was interesting because it sort of coincided with me filling out the census. Yeah, I haven't gotten any of these. I'm like, neither. don't they want Wait, so, to know about me? So it's just like a small <laughs> portion of the population gets them and then they kind of yeah, extrapolate. Yeah, they extrapolate and they also are always collecting more so they kind of re- can readjust quicker, but it will never be like a full count. Like you can't get an exact number. Um, and also while I was doing this research, I decided to look at other countries to be like, how do they get this language data? And I found out that it's a whole mess. Like... <laughs> Every country has something different. The United Kingdom still just asks questions about language as of now. But then there's like the European Union has something called a Eurobarometer, which is a very funny word. And they use a similar system where they're like polling a select number of people in the European Union to get the data. And then there's some countries that just don't have accurate data at all. And I was trying to find, like, where are they getting these numbers from? And then I got into a rabbit hole because who knows? <laughs> They're just numbers. We think this Wait, is it really called a Eurobarometer? Yeah. These are, <laughs> so language was a big nice. one, but they do these all the time. It's a lot like the American Community Survey, but for the whole European Union. And then they call it because the original purpose was they were kind of trying to get a barometer of what people are and they'll do it with like politics and stuff as well interesting that's it's super crazy. cool maybe one day yeah. we'll we'll get one of those surveys i'm very excited <laughs> thomas i have a question if you you might know the answer but do you know if you're not a native speaker of english if you can request a census in a different language or what the process is like if you get a, a census in english and you don't and you can't read it you can't understand do you think that might affect some of the numbers or there are definitely What's concerns about that, and there's just so much, because there are so many languages spoken in the country. So I believe the census, I forget the exact number, but it's in dozens of different languages. And then even for smaller ones, they try to recruit census takers who speak the minority languages. So they do their best, but I'm sure there are places where it's just falling through the gaps. And because of the situation this year, where there are fewer in-person possibilities, that's definitely going to be a problem that they're going to try to address somehow we'll find out nice very nice awesome what's your soothing word for us thomas i may have forgotten about the soothing word part (laughs) so i've kind of just been scrolling through words in my head i did too just tell us your favorite word right now off the top of my head this is a spanish word it's just anaranjado it's the spanish word for orange and it doesn't mean anything soothing but i just i've always liked honestly all this Spanish colors, just like rojo, amarillo. They're so much nicer because you red, yellow, black. It's no good. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. I like it. Whenever I want to come down, I just look at a Spanish rainbow. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Thomas. (laughs) Um, So I'm just going to continue clockwise in our little little video chat windows. Um, So I will go next. Um, And talk about Ben Franklin, surprisingly, maybe. So one of our founding fathers, you may know him from being a founding father or from (laughs) his kite electricity business and all of his inventions. But did you know that he was also kind of an amateur linguist? Um, He had very, very strong opinions about the English alphabet, which 
when I learned this, I was like, what? Why? So surprised. Ben Franklin could have been totally well actually you about anything. That's very true. He definitely well actually so we don't that a lot. I'll have strong opinions about the alphabet, is what I'm getting. Awkward. I feel like I, I think it's about just alphabet. you. All right. Okay. Now. Wow. I guess there are a lot of opinions. Um, so Ben Benjamin Franklin. Um, so he developed a phonetic English alphabet in 1768. Um, and his whole thing was like, he wanted to prioritize letters that he thought like were easier to pronounce or like took less vocal effort. Um, and based on sounds, he thought some of them were redundant. Yeah. He's like a lot. Um, so he argued that the letters C, J, Q, W, X, and Y should be removed entirely. Like just get rid of them. They're pointless. Like. Oh god. He's saying like, yeah, he's saying like soft C sounds could be replaced with S and hard C sounds could be replaced with K. So why do you need a C? It's a little redundant, right? Um and then some of the others he just like didn't like. Like he was like W stupid. Like he had a just a lot of opinions. <laughs> um it was yeah, it's very interesting. Um and then he said every remaining letter after you get rid of those should only have one sound associated with them to be less confusing, which I think is fair because English can be a little confusing pronunciation wise. Um and he also he did want to add a couple letters though because he thought we didn't fully cover all of them. So he wanted to add a soft O sound, like in folly. Um, so he would add a letter for that. And he also wanted to add letters for the SH sound and the NG the sound at the end of like boing, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many NG sounds. Morning. Any ING word. You know boing. what? I like boing, Dylan. I defend you. I defend you. In Thank you boing. so That's... much. Boing so is great. Would this be more like the Spanish alphabet, because I know the Spanish is not a perfect phonetic alphabet, but generally there's kind of an even mapping where it's like, if you see the letter uh, R, it's going to make a R sound. If you see the letter H, it'll be silent. And you can kind of predict it a lot more easily than English where it's like, I don't know, that could be anything. Yeah, and I think that's why Spanish is like a lot easier for some people to learn because especially with pronunciation, it's like pretty straightforward. And they also have extra letters like the Enye um, to make that specific sound. So yeah, so it's super interesting. I thought it was weird. I mean, I guess it's not that surprising, but I didn't know that Benjamin Franklin had this passion. Um, clearly his attempts did not make it to the larger public um, because we still have all those letters that he wanted to ax. So, I mean, based like, on based on how Brits feel about like American pronunciation in general, that kind of makes sense that we don't want our mouths to work harder than they have to. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. That's true. We're very lazy. That sounds a lot like Noah Webster, who um, I think we might have talked about him on an episode before, but he tried to reform the spelling of the English language too because he published mm -hmm. what was what became essentially the first American English dictionary. And he was like, all right, the extra U's in the word, like in words like color or favorite, like get rid of those. Um, like center theater, the words that end in RE, like switch the E and the R, makes no sense to have it RE. 
Um, totally. So he, I think, was a, like a big proponent of spelling change. It seems like people are always trying to reform the way that words are spelled. Um, and very few people, I'm guessing, have success because we still have so many crazy, like, really wonky spellings of English words. And that is obviously because they come, these words come from so many different backgrounds, like so many different languages. Uh, I just think it's, I think it's always funny when someone sets out to like reform the entire way that we spell things because who's like, like, I know how to do it. Yeah. It's like, well, we've been using it this way for hundreds of years. So good luck to you. Like I wish you the best, but I think that this is going <laughs> right. to be a miserable failure. Yes. So that was fun. Um, so my soothing word is an English word to go along with my theme of English language. Um, and it is luminescence, um, which has some sounds that Ben Franklin would not approve of, like the C as a soft <laughs> C sound. But anyway, I digress. Um, luminescence, meaning the spontaneous emission of light not created by heat, um, as opposed to fluorescence, which is created by heat. And it's from Latin, I believe, from the Latin lumen and the English essence. Um, and it is very pretty and fluid, and I like it. Um, so now on to Jen. Wait, I have one more, I have one more question okay. for you all. Did you know that Ben Franklin was also the first US Postmaster General? And this is relevant because the Postal Service is running out of funding. So we need to remember our roots and pay homage to Ben Franklin because he was, he was like, of all the other random things he did with his <laughs> experiments and like being a founding father, he was also the first postmaster general. Which the is OG postman. The OG. Thank you. That's a great what point. What an interesting little piece of trivia, David. Right. <laughs> Love that. Love I'm that. always here for the interesting trivia. Um, my, I guess I didn't really do a learning of the week, but I do have a recommendation um, for mm. you guys and for listeners, because I know that we're all looking for things to do um, and specifically like ways to escape, even though we're kind of stuck at home. Um, I have been watching the second season of My Brilliant Friend on HBO, which is the adaptation of the famous Elena Ferrante quartet uh, strongly suspected to be like her biographical autobiographical experience but it follows kind of like the lifetime of a friendship between two women starting uh when they're children all the way up through their adult years and i read the entire quartet last year obviously in english since i do not know any italian um and the show is subtitled in english but in the actual in variations of the Neapolitan dialect, um, which kind of they use in the series to denote like class and education levels um, throughout kind of like as the characters grow and certain ones emerge out of kind of the poverty of, of Naples and, and some stay in Naples and rooted. Um, that's kind of how they differentiate it. Unfortunately, if you don't really know Italian, you won't pick up as much on that, on those sort of shades. In the book, it's much more clear because will tell you like she said this in Neapolitan and this in perfect Italian and it's a little bit more clear um but you don't have to have read the books to understand the series it is beautiful um uh, I mean obviously it's HBO's budget um the story is just like um especially in season two is very like coming of age so like there's a lot of teen and like love drama 
um, which I'm here for. So I'm very into. It's like this yes. beautiful like world you can escape into for over an hour. Each episode is over an hour, so it's like a a really like full experience. Um, and it definitely like transports you in a way a lot of other shows are not able to. And since you are reading subtitles, you're able to kind of appreciate the language and you're also like not on your phone the whole time, which is my big guilty sin I commit when I watch TV. I'm always looking yeah. at my phone. Um, and it makes you really, at least it makes me really want to learn Italian because it's just so beautiful. I mean, I didn't really come up with like a soothing word, but there's so many in the series that even just people's names, like one of the main characters, her last name is Chirulu. And I think that's just like the most beautiful, Ooh. like, <laughs> it's just like a really beautiful name. Um, so that's I nice. would highly recommend watching it if you have access to HBO or a friend with HBO access that you can steal. Um, watch My Brilliant Friend. There's It's on season two now. Thomas wrote about it uh, the first season. We'll link it. Um, but it's it's a really, really nice escape right now, especially since we can't be doing any traveling. It's kind of nice to get out. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it feels like you're taking a little trip, right? <laughs> especially since a lot of the season happens on the beach. It's just like this beautiful Ooh. Italian coastline. And the score oh. is really beautiful. So it's just like a really, like, it honestly is like my favorite thing to do every week to decompress. That's a great recommendation. That's so Thank lovely. you, Jen. Love that. All right, David, what have you Last, got? but certainly not least. So one thing that, one learning recommendation that I came across when I was on Quora this week, and if you don't follow us on Quora already, this is your perfect chance to do it because we're all stuck at <laughs> home. We all need something to do. But if you go to Quora.com and you look for the everything language space, that's the one that we run. And it has a lot of really good resources, especially for times like these when you're, you might be looking for ways to entertain yourselves or keep your mind simulated. Um, a lot of resources on there. So I, I posed a question on that space that was like, what are you doing to keep up with your language learning while you're stuck at home? And one response was that um, one of the women who, I forget what language she was learning, but she had mentioned using news reports as a really valuable resource for language learning which makes total sense to me. I hadn't really thought of it before, but I did some digging as to how to use um, news reports effectively and why they're so effective for language learning. And um, everything that I found makes total sense to me because if you think about it, like when you watch the news, what you hear from news anchors or what you hear on the radio um, is kind of the most standardized mainstream version or variety of a language that you can get. Because um, news anchors are trained to speak really clearly and they're, they're trained to enunciate and really pronounce each each consonant and each vowel so that listeners aren't getting some sort of like they're not getting slang they're not really getting colloquial colloquial expressions they're getting a very direct and straightforward um, usage of the language so I thought that that was a reason um, reason enough to to commit to news reports as as a really good tool for language learning but then couple that with the fact that they're also really accessible like a lot of um, you can find a lot of news online for free in different languages. So if you go to like the like Der Spiegel in German, like that's one of the main um, media outlets in Germany, and you can find a lot of not all of their stuff is going to be free because a lot of it lives behind a paywall, um, just like it would in the United States. But um, you can go to their homepage and see like how much of the the main headlines on the homepage you can understand. 
So I'm, I'm, this is also like it applies to writing as well. It's not just listening and, and watching news anchors on TV or the radio. It's like you can pick up a newspaper. Um, you can go to like a news website like Le Monde in, uh, in France would be another great example as well. So uh, and because news is also updated really frequently, like you get a, a taste of what's going on in the world at, in real time. Like it's a great way to tune into current events across international borders too. If you're kind of like, Oh, what's, I mean, everyone is kind of affected by coronavirus right now. So you might be like, all right, well, I knew that this was happening in France and Germany, whatever. But at other times when the world is kind of like, there are lots of different things happening in the world. It's a great way to like keep a pulse on, on what's going on, especially if you can understand um, like use it as a, as a training mechanism to, to learn a new language as well. It's, a, it's like a all in one package of like, Oh, I'm getting some culture mixed in. I'm getting some politics. I'm getting some language as well. So, um, and something that we can all do at home. So that's good advice. Um, do you have a soothing word for us by chance? David? Yeah. Um, I, I came to the table with one in Spanish, but then Jen was talking about Italian and how beautiful that language is. And I remembered that there are a lot of Italian words that I think are really beautiful and soothing. Um, so I'll share both. The Italian word is, uh, farfalla, which means butterfly. If you've ever eaten farfalle pasta, pasta. That's like, yeah, it's like the, they're like bow ties or butterfly shapes. Yeah. So that's where they get their name. I just think it's so beautiful. It rolls off the tongue. Farfalla. And you have to do the, the chef's kiss. Farfalla. <laughs> and then the other word in Spanish is trabajada, which is like a conjugation of the word trabajar, which means to work. And usually you don't think of work as soothing at all. So I think that's why it's kind of funny to me that this word just sounds like, I love rhymes. Um, I love little melodies in words. So trabajada is a really, it's like the, the imperfect tense of, which is like a, a form of the past tense. So you would say like, I used to work or something used to work or like I did work. Um, and it depends on the context as well. Um, and when you use that word, but I've always, ever since I learned is like, Oh, trabajar <laughs> is the word to work. And then you, the conjugation for the imperfect is in for verbs that end in AR is aba. So together it's trabajaba. Trabajaba. I've said that for years. It. I've just said trabajaba. That's I love it. Great. It's word. funny because like it mentions how context it can be. I think for someone who's like a native Spanish speaker, maybe that's not as interesting. But like even the fighting that happens, because there's a lot of like rough language and fighting that happens in my brilliant friend but i'm just thinking like this is so beautiful and musical <laughs> yeah this sounds well, lovely thinking, not angry yeah i remember it's funny that you mentioned the neapolitan dialect because i don't know much about the dialects of italian but i remember i wrote an article about five tv shows to stream if you're learning italian and one of them took place in naples and i remember the reviews were like if you don't if you speak italian like the standard dialect you will not understand neapolitan at all like it is so like <laughs> rough it is so distinct so i think if we have any like italian learners out there who want an extra challenge it's probably a really great way to watch my brilliant friend not i mean i don't know i haven't seen it but it sounds like you it would be a struggle to pick up on like um this dialect from naples but it might be really rewarding if you can do it too yeah, hbo I did not sponsor <laughs> this podcast just for the record <laughs> i can confirm that an italian babylonian who is from Italy said that she has to use Italian subtitles because she can't understand Neapolitan otherwise. The dialects in Italy are very interesting. But that's so, a whole nother topic for yeah. another day. Yeah, it's, it's our completely next episode. Different. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, awesome. Well, these were all really great um, factoids. So thank you guys for joining me and for sharing them. Of course. Thank you. Let's never right. say factoid again. <laughs> I think it's a great word, factoid. Factoid. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Soothing. Okay. Well. Bye. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, everyone. Ben. Bye. Multilinguish is produced by the content team at Babbel. We are Thomas Moore Devlin, David Duchin, Steph Koifman, Dylan Lyons, and I'm Jen Jordan. Ruben Vilesh makes us sound good. Our logo was designed by Ali Zhao. You can read more about today's episode topic and more on Babbel magazine. Just visit babbel.com slash magazine. Say hi on social media by finding us at Babbel USA, all one word. Finally, please rate and review this podcast. We really appreciate it.